This week, Paul and I discuss the current state of privacy and software development. In the news, Microsoft Exchange is vulnerable to a PrivExchange zero day. Advocacy groups are pushing for the FTC to break up Facebook. And Safari engineers look at a different approach to fighting intrusive ads. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences' patented technology protects any application against any attack, with integrations into any DevOps tool chain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome, everyone, to episode 49, our 50th episode of Application Security Weekly. I am, of course, your host, Keith Hoodlett, and I'm excited to be joined once again by my illustrious co-host, Paul Asadorian. Hey, thanks, Keith. It's good to be here on this Monday after the Super Bowl, especially when it's the Super Bowl where the, the Patriots have won. It makes it an extra special good day after the Super Bowl. You know, it is one of those things where you're both tired and elated all at once, especially if you live in New England. Now, I remember back in the day before Tom Brady, uh, where Drew Bledsoe was, you know, playing mm-hmm. for us. And uh, yeah, needless to say, I have grown up in the golden generation of living in the greater Boston area. I will say that much. So, yes, I was, uh, you know, like nine years old in 1985, 86 time frame where both the Patriots and the Red Sox uh, had terrible losses. Uh, and now I get to see our, our teams do fantastic, which is which yeah. is awesome. It's awesome. And I got I got to say I really love your Edelman jersey. They are very hard to come by, and uh, I'm a little jealous. But he is pretty amazing. So the whole time, uh, my nephew, he's 15. He's going, who's going to win the MVP? Who's going? And it's like in the fourth quarter, it's still three three. And I I just kept telling him he hates Tony Romo. I'm like Tony Romo's going to get the MVP, dude. <laughs> <laughs> he was so mad. <laughs> oh, man. So I'm going to go off on a, a sports ball tangent for just a minute and say that somebody needs to go in and hire Tony Romo as a, a defensive coordinator because he mm-hmm. reads the plays of offensive teams so, so well. It's scary. Like, he really gets it for every time they're playing. He's like, yep, they're killing the play. They're doing this other thing. They're going to do this. Um, yeah, I would and, not be surprised if he gets a defensive coordinator offer by somebody. And for that reason, he makes a great commentator in that respect that he can give you that technical aspect which is kind of interesting it's kind of the one of the analogies i use to these shows uh keith right like if this were a sports show when we're all ex-football players you would get that level of insights this is a security show and we're all security practitioners so you get those level of insights the thing that's hard for us is that we didn't grow up as broadcasters right so we had to kind of learn that and it, it took me years to get down interviewing people and and hosting a show and lots of listening to other shows, that's one area where I think, you know, that people get annoyed with Tony Romo is he's not as skilled as a broadcaster. And I think he'll get there, right? It's just experience that teaches that. And I have to say, I've done commentary for like a hacking event and, and various things 
when there's nothing going on, dude, like you got to fill time and that's hard. That's really hard. So when he starts talking about all these like, you know, ridiculous stating the obvious things, like they're filling time, like they have to talk the whole time. In a game like that, there was nothing really going on for the first three quarters, even into the fourth quarter. So like, I get it. I get it. Right. But it was, I think that's a good analogy to the show is, you know, while our hosts have, or, you know, our practitioners in some capacity, you know, either have been still are, you know, that, that kind of stuff. It's important. I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So before we jump into our conversation, by the way, I do want to make sure we get one quick announcement out of the way. I enjoy reading this every week and I think I'm doing a pretty good job so far. So uh, without further ado, RSA Conference 2019 is the place to be for the latest in cybersecurity data, innovation, and thought leadership. From March 4th to the 8th, San Francisco will come alive with cybersecurity's brightest minds as they gather together to discuss the industry's newest developments. Go to rsaconference.com slash securityweekly-us19er to register now using the discount code 5uniform, or excuse me, 5utah9er Sierra Whiskey Foxtrot Delta to receive $100 off a full conference pass. Now, someone on Twitter tells me that it is uniform. Okay, well, we're going to go with five uniform Niner Sierra Whiskey Foxtrot Delta. I think that's right. I think that's right. (laughs) Continued commitment to excellence here on Security Weekly. Indeed, indeed. And please write us uh, PSW at securityweekly.com if we need to do this in another phonetic alphabet at any point in time. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, Paul, I wanted to start about the current or talk, start talking about, uh, if I could talk, uh, about the current state of privacy in software development. Now, last week we saw Apple um, take what I think were appropriate measures in dealing with uh, some of the behaviors of Facebook and Google by in this case, temporarily, revoking their enterprise uh, certificate that they were using for internal applications, uh, which both Facebook and Google have been found uh, to be using to bypass some of the protections that existed inside of the Apple ecosystem to publish uh, applications for end users to download and use. Now, uh, with that being said, uh, Facebook was doing this to basically put in a VPN service to collect data for a study, as they like to call it, uh, on users that included uh, something like teenagers, like 13-year-olds. Uh, Google was found to have been doing the same thing, except that Google was much more forward about what they were doing. And younger individuals, such as teenagers, uh, could not sign up for it unless, of course, an adult was on the account already and they were part of like a family plan. So I believe at this point from, from everything I've read in the news on the New York Times and other, uh, other sources that Apple has since uh, re-permitted or re-allowed that certificate to be used by uh, Facebook and then respectively uh, Google for their own certificate as well. Um, but I think that they took the right action in kind of a shot across the bow of uh, ye shall not you know, use your internal developer cert for external applications that bypass some of their protections. Hmm. Um, so with all that being said, Paul, before we dive into maybe some of the past history and some of the concerns that I have around the state of software development and the current state of privacy as it exists or maybe doesn't exist, um, did you have any thoughts or commentary on uh, recent events before we dive into the past a little bit? Well, I, th- I think it's interesting just, you know, my thoughts when I started uh, reading the, the content and the materials for this segment, Keith, was, you know, a lot of the software developers that we've, we've hired um, at Security Weekly and that I've worked with, when they're in school, they tell me we have to take a course, a course or two, at least one course on ethics, right? And 
Usually, you know, that centers around if you were going to write software that allowed something to do someone, you know, blatantly some type of ethics or moral violation, right? Like it, the software is going to, people are going to die, right? In, in, in other words, and that could be in any industry, right? But whatever software you're writing, having uh, that ethics training allows you to foresee and, in, 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 you know, maybe kind of like map out what ethics and moral morale or morals mean rather when you're running software right but again typically that's you know people are it's going to unleash poison into the water system or unleash some kind of bomb or you know something like pretty ridiculous um and then also the stealing aspect of it right if you're going to enable people to steal in, and I'm sure it's talked about, but one of the things that I think also has to come out of ethics courses today, and also I wish they would have security courses for developers, which I'm sure they do, but we, I want to see that part of the curriculum as well, right? Um, but in, in, search, in terms of ethics, what about the ethics behind privacy, right? How, when, when should you question your manager and or employer when you're a software developer and you can see that the motives are to violate someone's privacy? Not necessarily illegal, right? And, you know, we obviously in the ethics class, you're talking about what's legal and what's moral and the difference between the two, right? I, we've probably had those discussions before in ethics classes and discussions sitting around the cigar lounge or the bar or whatever. Um, but what, what do we do when it's a privacy issue? Like when, when do you kind of make a decision to leave? I know personally people that I've known have left um, the Facebooks, Googles, and Apples of the world, and who knows if some of those motivations were because of violation of privacy rights. So I, I think it's an, a, a good, timely topic, Keith, to talk about the ethics behind privacy for software developers. And one of the things as well that um, I do like to point out to people is, and one of the counter arguments that I've seen to some of these discussions is, well, you're telling people to say no to their employer. What if they lose their job? And my comeback to that is they work for, you know, Google or Facebook or Apple or whoever, they're probably going to be okay in finding another job, mm -hmm. um, especially just given the state of developers as they are today, Absolutely. Um, which is they're, they're harder to find and they're more expensive in general. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so one of the things that um, for me, I, I did cite it in the show notes. It's the very first link under uh, the current state of privacy and software development. So this actually cites an article that goes back to 2014. Uh, it was on June 29th of 2014 specifically. Now, this article in particular was actually what sparked me to uh, effectively delete everything in the substance of my Facebook account and then abandon it wholesale. At the time, they did not have like a delete my Facebook account mm -hmm. option. So I could only remove all of the data. Um, that was available. So what's important about this article is, is it's from The Guardian and it writes, Facebook reveals newsfeed experiment to control emotions. Now, I'm sure that many people that are listening to this are saying like today, well, yeah, obviously, right? Like that's, that's something that we can point to now after the 2016 election issues that have revolved around Facebook and other things that have come up in relation to Facebook that they say, yeah, of course they are. Um, back then it was kind of a revelation. Now, what bothered me the most about the situation uh, for that was Cornell University and University of California were working in conjunction with Facebook to perform this experiment. And specifically what they were doing was both looking for uh, positive emotional content versus negative emotional content and determining how that content would in fact uh, shape the emotions of the individual to some degree 
but also shape their usage of the platform. And in my mind, uh, so my bachelor's degree is in psychology mm. and uh, I was just utterly disgusted with uh, the study itself. And here's the reason why. There was no internal review board. There was no informed consent. And they were playing with people's emotions, right? Like they were trying to make them sadder by showing them sadder content was to see there, how it would impact their use of the, of the platform. Was there a control group? I'm sure that would have been everybody else, right? Yeah, don't, okay, don't sure. That. So that would have been the, the people that... Basically what they did is they said, okay, we're going to show... I think it was something like 600,000, uh, almost 700,000 people. We're going to show them explicitly negative content or explicitly positive content mm -hmm. and we're going to filter their feeds accordingly right <clears throat> so i think it was over the course of several months that they showed people explicitly negative content now we all know that there is a real problem especially with youth today with depression or in some cases suicide right or drug use or other things and by showing someone just continuous negative content like there is no uh so the other side of this as well is usually out of uh, psychological experiments there's no support of any kind or no like mechanisms to trigger to stop a person from being involved in that kind of experiment if they start right. to show you know adverse behavior because yeah, you can't know that been, and i'm sure you studied these in, in school keith right where they conduct experiments like that i mean it's a very well documented thing that the content right. that someone con consumes will in effect, I don't want to use the word control because control makes me think I got a chip in my head that's linked to, to Facebook, but influences my my yeah. emotions. But that's a very well proven. I mean, we've seen that in TV and movies all the time, right? Like, what's absolutely um, Clockwork Orange is uh, the yep. classic film example of that. And again, that's fiction, but I'm sure there's many right. studies grounded in in actual science that will prove that, right? Right, right. And so so for me, that was the triggering event that led me to abandoning Facebook and encouraging as many other people as possible to also abandon Facebook. Because I think the ethics uh, and the morals of Facebook were pretty, pretty clear that they would agree to do such a thing and let alone actually carry it out, right? Now, so, does that override? Because as a user, I do have some control over what's shown in my feed. In other words, I can say, show me these people's posts over anyone else's. I'm wondering if they overrode that setting. I imagine what it probably would have been is they would show you those people's posts, but it, only, only if, it if they negative. were deemed to be negative. Right, right, right. And there's a so, million ways they could determine negative versus positive, right? I mean, you can look at the reactions, you can look at the comments, there's a million different ways. Right. So in my mind, as a, as a developer, I'm sure that there were probably fewer developers that were involved in the process of saying, okay, can you, uh, can you uh, monitor a person's feed or can you teach the AI, mm -hmm. it really is what it is, to monitor a person's feed for um, you know, emotional state or the, the things that are being fed into their feed uh, as an emotional state? And then can we turn toggles for that emotional state accordingly. It's uh, almost no wonder that the, probably the number one employer of people with degrees in psychology ends up being the Facebooks and the Googles of the world because mm -hmm. the other side of what they're actually trying to do is they're trying to build uh, addiction into the software, which is, I think, why so many people still use Facebook and Google and so forth. It's interesting Google though, more you have to. When I of. see a lot of like not positive posts, I just stop reading Facebook. Uh, in, in, but I wonder how that was factored again into your point. The study you have issues with it. If if that wasn't factored, in, like how do you factor that in, right? Because then, like, yeah, it could influence me. But 
what percentage stopped reading and then your statistics are based on whoever was left reading you know that that feed and i'm curious right. to see how they separated that that data well it's probably like time of use right they said oh paul used to be using i don't know three hours a week now he's only using 20 minutes a day for three days like he's right. only using an hour a week and so they they probably have measurements to that degree right and the irony about i i say using because it's almost again it's back to that addicting behavior right mm -hmm. you're using the application so mm -hmm. it's like you're using uh, a drug that gives you uh dopamine mm -hmm. uh, is effectively what it is it's the reason why people always uh check their phones for you know new email or new twitter posts or new twitter messages um same same sort of thing so this was, again, it was back in 2014, so we're going on almost five years of that. And the thing that concerns me most about the situation as it revolves to privacy is now uh, it's been shown fairly readily on a number of occasions that Facebook has um, no respect for privacy, right? So one of the things that a lot of people point back to is all of the Facebook like buttons that you find on websites. Those all provide feedback and data back to Facebook. And in fact, if you're not even a Facebook user and you haven't done anything to block connections back to Facebook, mm -hmm. uh, they still track you. They still effectively, you become John Doe 143729. Um, but they might know that, okay, well, John Doe 143729 lives with, uh, you know, right. that, that person who has a Facebook account. So then you can start to assume who John Doe, one, three, whatever number is, who they are, right? You don't necessarily have them labeled in your database as such, but you know where they live and you know who they live with. So you can infer a lot of details about them. Mm -hmm. um, and so in my mind, it's, it's a matter of um, at what point is, is enough enough? And then also uh, at, at what point do we actually start to see people at Facebook, you know, kind of stand up and walk out? Now there was the, the mass protests at Google, the walkout at Google, uh, I think just a couple of months ago related to um, the treatment of, you know, gender identity uh, at Google and making sure that people were paid fairly and treated fairly accordingly inside of there. But I have yet to see, I think, any sort of walkout of any kind from anyone at Facebook. Um, which is interesting to me, right? So it's it's almost as though now we have a, a group of developers that they get paid so well that their ethics become perhaps morally, um, not corrupt, but uh, what's the right word I'm looking for here? They're compromised, right? Because if they get a $100,000 bonus and they make $300,000 a year, then they're probably going to look the other way when Facebook says, hey, we want you to train the AI to uh, monitor for people who are having... Um, you know, different uh, political viewpoints and then start tailoring ads to them based on their political viewpoints, right? Yep. Which is, by the way, exactly what, uh, or sup supposedly, or what is being investigated. I, I'm learning or leaning toward uh, it being factual evidence that um, certain state actors leveraged that technology against, uh, you know, f users of Facebook into the benefit of certain political parties. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's a matter of uh, second and third order problems now of so you can collect all the data, should you? And I don't know if, Paul, if you have any thoughts on that. I know we've discussed, um, you know, security implications of some of that, but I, I imagine you probably have a few thoughts around that. In terms of social media collecting my data? Sure, by all means. Let's start there. Yeah, well, I mean, as we know, if the service is free... Uh, it's not really free that they're using your data in in some way. And I like your point, Keith, that sure, data can be anonymized, 
but it can also be correlated in de-anonymized very, very quickly, depending on what you're correlating it uh, with. So while I think many of us do try to find comfort in the fact that, oh, this data will be shared anonymously, eh, I, you, you might want to question that, right? Because it might not be as anonymous uh, as you think. Well, and, and so the other side of it, as we found again with Facebook from a security side of things, right, is uh, to quote Josh Corman in I Am the Cavalry, if you collect it, you must protect it, mm-hmm. right? And we have seen time and again that the, the most uh, egregious offenders of data collection don't do the best job of protecting it. Google, I would say, does a better job right? But they just had the whole kind of, you know, pie in their face roll around Google Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, but Facebook has had, you know, a whole slew of issues around it. And, and yet, right, like they, they still seem to have, you know, there's no mass walkouts. There's no people that are suddenly saying that they're quitting, uh, you know, in, in protest. There's no, um, you know, turn of behavior that we can see of any kind other than, you know, they say that we will do better. And then we find out that, hey, by the way, they're, they're doing things to very specifically bypass uh, ecosystem protections and controls by a provider, Apple, who markets themselves on privacy uh, and, and, you know, the protection of your data because they don't market themselves in that same way. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, we're, we're coming to a point in history now where we're hitting an inflection, right? We're starting to see uh, legislation such as GDPR come out, which is starting to curb the uh, collection of data to some degree so that at least people can exercise their individual rights to make sure that their data is uh, properly removed, for example. Um, and I think that we're also seeing second order consequences of effectively the click here uh, to say it's okay to collect your data on every website that you ever browse ever. Uh, and everybody just clicks it anyway because they want to see the website. Yeah. So I don't know. Paul, have you ever read the book uh, Virtual Unreality by any chance? No, I need to get a book recommended list from you, a reading list from you. I've got a few. Yeah, um, that's if you recommended some some books, I need some new ones to, to listen to in my in my car, so... Cool. I've got a couple. Um, that's one of them. For all of our, our listeners out there, that will be one that I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about next week. Um, but it it gets to the point of at some point when you've got a, a connected community as large as we have, you will find people on the internet who share your beliefs uh, and will you'll effectively gravitate toward them uh, and you'll have a, a somewhat of a negative bias against anyone who does not share your beliefs. Mm-hmm. I think that the the anti-vaxxer movement yes. um, has is like is one of those key examples. I think you see the same thing in politics today. Um, you see the same thing in a number of spaces in security, like people that say, hey, you need HTTPS everywhere. Uh, and then you have like a small subset of people that are, are almost fighting against that because they believe that you don't need it. And they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of rallying around this idea of, no, we can all do this in clear text. It's fine. Um, and so I, I'm concerned for current state uh, when it comes to privacy, because I think that to some degree, people are losing the will to fight against it. Uh, but at the same time, developers are getting paid fairly well. So they're not necessarily taking everything into account from a standpoint of, like, should I be doing this, first of all? Um, and then when you mix in 
technologies that are still, they're nascent, they're still kind of coming about, which is AI and machine learning. Um, it's almost a recipe for disaster that we're setting our, ourselves up for. And we'll talk more about that next week. But it's it's a question of now we can collect data, but should we? And then we need to make sure that we're protecting it if we are. And I don't know that anyone's doing the the right amount of protecting as they should be. I mean, I'm sure you know there are many companies that are, of course, especially the ones that have HIPAA data. Um, but even then, we, we see people that aren't doing the best job of it because to the point you made earlier, Paul, uh, there are a lot of developers and granted, there aren't enough of them in, in kind of the economy as it stands because they're just uh, in such high demand for especially these large companies. There are even less security people to protect the actual software that those developers are writing. Um, so I don't know, Paul, I, I kind of see a perfect storm coming about where you have more data than you could possibly use being collected and aggregated by AI. Uh, and then from there, um, not being secured properly and, and leading to a whole host of issues for individuals uh, that may or may not have been totally in consent of their data being um, stolen or you know hoovered up by the large companies. Do you have any kind of additional thoughts? I know we're running down toward the end of the segment, so. Well, yeah, um, you know, I think a, you know a long time ago I started seeing the decree that privacy is dead. Um, and I was like, <clears throat> a lot of us were like, yeah, that's nice. You know, we knew that. Now I think. Given the amount of data that we're putting out there, even without our knowledge or permission, uh, I think it really, even more so today, begs the question of what do we do about it, both from a consumer perspective, uh, a business perspective, and as an employee of these companies, what collectively do we do in technology about it to help protect people's privacy? And I still think it's a huge issue today. I don't think we can throw our hands up and say privacy is dead maybe several years ago before we're putting a lot of this information online, we could get away with it in certain cases. Now it's, it's not, that's, I don't think that's an option. I really think we need to arm people with the tools and knowledge they need to be able to protect their privacy as best they can. And one of the things that um, we're already starting to see evidence for, and I don't think any of us are surprised about it, but uh, last fall, uh, John Hancock, which is a, an uh, insurance provider here in, in the United States. So they're owned by Manulife uh, Financial, who is a um, Canadian provider of life insurance and, and financial um, units. So mutual funds, things of that nature. So John Hancock uh, dropped uh, their life insurance uh, pretty much wholesale, except for policies that were related to biometrics. So now it was a situation where you could only buy a life insurance policy from John Hancock if you used an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or something of that nature to track effectively your behavior, whether it comes to um, I don't know necessarily if they track consumption and calorie count, but certainly uh, tracking your activity levels, right? And I can only imagine that okay, you pair activity levels with uh, credit card purchases of groceries. Uh, then you look at number of people in the household and also, I don't know, how much Netflix they watch in a week or how much uh, video games they, they're playing based on metrics that they're gathering off of, I don't know, their ISP, for example, and connectivity to certain websites. Well, suddenly you have a, a pretty good picture of the health of that person, right? Um, because you can tell how many steps they're doing or you can tell their heart rate over different times. And, uh, and you draw enough of a picture where you can say, yeah, we're no longer going to cover that person for life insurance because they eat nothing but fatty foods and chocolate. They 
don't seem to have any activity. And by the way, we can correlate this to their watching behaviors of YouTube or Netflix or video game playing, whereby clearly that person's not going to be in great health in the next 30 years and is going to have a heart attack. So we're just not going to insure them anymore. And it's like, we're there. We're, we're already at the point where we now have at least one major life insurer here in the United States that is starting to use data to determine uh, if you are an insurable individual or not. And I don't know that that's a great thing, right? Because no, that scares me a lot, actually. Right. It's like to the extent that you have the the human freedom to be able to do what you want, that is uh, the impetus for uh, social control to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's maybe maybe we can't make you work out, maybe we can't make you buy better groceries, but we can certainly not insure you. Um, which ends up meaning that your uh, cost of living goes way up, but also um, your chance for bankruptcy, right? So even if it's just health insurance, right? So imagine if that then now translates into health insurance where, hey, by the way, if you're not doing so many steps a day, we're not going to give you health insurance. Um, I, I it, get the feeling that we're not far off. Was that a Black Mirror episode or something? It, it will be. It, it's there, like There's it's ones like that are similar, right? <laughs> Season one, episode two or three, it's the one where they have the people on the bicycles and like they've yes. got those weird, yeah. So that's that's already, yeah, it's the uh, 8 million merits. Yes, thank you, uh, Johnny, for that. So, uh, or that might've been Mark, but either way, um, in my ear here. So um, it, that is one of those things where it's like, Black Mirror was not a, a guide, uh, mm -hmm. neither was the book right. 1984 for that right. matter. And yet here we are, right? Like we are, we are getting to the point of, of this uh, situation where um, art is imitating life uh, more than life is imitating art per se. Mm -hmm. And I was actually, and I'll probably link it for next week's article because it had some really good points about what we need to do to, to kind of uh, change the state of things for a better future. Um, but there was an article that I was reading this past weekend uh, that was talking about kind of exactly this, right? Like we're, we're getting to a point now where we have the ability to do a lot of these things, but that doesn't mean we should be doing a lot of these things. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I think that if you're a software developer today, uh, I mean, if you're doing front end web dev, even this is very much your world because while you might be making sure that the website looks the way you, it, it should, or you want it to, uh, you're also the kind of the first level uh, data gathering mechanism to determine, hey, do I want a Facebook button on our on our page? Because by the way, Facebook is going to be using that to track users as they browse to your page. Uh, do you want uh, you know a Google Plus or a LinkedIn or a Twitter or a YouTube uh, link accordingly as well, for example? Um, and so I know that there have been at least uh, there's at least one company that I know of, and there's probably more. So uh, Basecamp, for example, uh, recently went Facebook free which is they have no links of any kind or any content uh, that go back to Facebook and they no longer have like a Facebook presence. Um, that was their business decision. And I, I think so far they've uh, made a good point of it. And so I wonder if we'll start to see that happen more and more, or maybe we won't. Um, that's more for next week, you know, more food for thought. So uh, Paul, any final thoughts on this segment before we jump into the news and, and, you know, have a short break and all that other good stuff. I'm good. Let's jump right into the news after a short break. How about that? Cool. 